This is Dr. Marty Fried. Dr. Shreya Trivedi. And Dr. Dan Sartori. This is the Core IM Five Pearls podcast brought to you by Clinical Correlations. Bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, we are talking about adrenal insufficiency. Thank you to Dr. Nidhi Agarwal, an endocrinologist at NYU, for peer-reviewing this. Today, we're joined by Dr. Dan Sartori, a future chief resident of internal medicine at NYU. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. Great to have you here, Dan. All right, so let's get started with the five questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, presentation of adrenal insufficiency. What are the signs and symptoms of adrenal insufficiency? And of these, which are the strongest predictors? Pearl 2, diagnosis and classification of AI. How do we diagnose adrenal insufficiency? And how can we use those tests to differentiate primary versus secondary adrenal insufficiency? Pearl 3, diagnostic tests. How sensitive and specific are these diagnostic tests for AI, and what are the cutoffs? Pearl 4, steroids and testing. Can we both test and treat for adrenal insufficiency at the same time? And Pearl 5, a throwback pearl from prior episode. How is hypokalemia and hepatic encephalopathy connected? All right. So just a quick point here before we're starting, guys. Adrenal insufficiency is awesome. Awesome. Is that it, Marty? Well, partially it. What's awesome about AI is that it's so often in the differential, but rarely is it the slam dunk diagnosis. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The best part is the workup of AI. So let's be honest. The treatment is a little bit less pearl-worthy. All roads always lead to steroids. Yep, all lead to steroids. So with that, let's get started. So to me, adrenal insufficiency means a few different things. I've definitely managed some scary sick patients in the ICU with acute adrenal insufficiency, but I've also seen adrenally insufficient patients in clinic who are doing pretty well on a simple dose of steroid replacement. I think you hit the nail on the head there. There's a big distinction between acute adrenal insufficiency, which is the state of distributive shock, not subtle, in your face, versus chronic adrenal insufficiency, where the signs and symptoms are ambiguous and not so specific. There's actually data out there to quantify just how puzzling this diagnosis can be for internists. Yeah, there is. There's one review that found that only about half of adrenally insufficient patients were actually correctly diagnosed within six months after their symptoms started. And 20% of the patients had to wait five years before the correct diagnosis. So let's start with the basics since no one comes in with their court stim test tattooed on their chest. You mean like that guy with the DNR tattooed on his sternum? Did anyone else catch that on the internet? Yeah, that went pretty viral. And nothing about the symptoms of AI are as clear-cut as that. All right, so break down for us. What is the most common symptoms in patients with chronic AI? In general, I think of symptoms related to loss of some pathomimetic stimulation from cortisol. So things like generalized fatigue. Bingo, fatigue is present almost universally, thought to be there in up to 94% of patients with chronic AI. Other really common complaints are weight loss, which is found in up to 75% of patients, and anything GI. So anything from constipation to delayed gastric emptying to diarrhea and vomiting. And don't forget that psychiatric complaints are quite prevalent as well. These can run the gamut from hypoactive depression to psychosis and even mania. Ugh, no wonder AI takes so long to diagnose. Psych complaints on top of nonspecific fatigue, GI issues, that's like half my patient panel, guys. And chronic adrenal insufficiency has been the last thing to cross my mind. Totally hear you, Shreya. An important diagnosis, but such vague symptoms. 
maybe the exam can help us. So Dan, what on exam could suggest adrenal insufficiency? In general, I think of signs resulting from loss of vascular tone, so things like hypotension with wide pulse pressures and orthostasis. This is actually estimated to occur in 55 to 65% of patients. And I feel like I remember something about hyperpigmentation. Yeah, skin hyperpigmentation is almost universally present. This is especially over the hands and knuckles, but this is specific to primary adrenal insufficiency, and we're going to talk about the specifics of this later. Okay, great. So let's draw some labs. What are the best lab clues? In general, I think of loss of mineralocorticoid activity on the kidney and loss of catabolic cortisol. So we're talking things like hyponatremia, which is found in 70 to 80% of patients with a primary AI, and hyperkalemia, which is found in 40% of patients with AI, and hypoglycemia. Great. So then on the CBC, we should be looking for eosinophilia. That step one NAACP mnemonic for peripheral eosinophilia is ingrained in my head. One of those A's was definitely for adrenal insufficiency. Ah, the step one days. I think you're spot on there, Shrey. Yeah, so it is thought that cortisol promotes apoptosis of EOS. So lack of cortisol and AI allows for proliferation of EOS. Right, so it's like the EOS are having a hardcore party in the blood because cortisol isn't around to shut it down. Nice analogy. I, but I can't say in clinical practice I've ever really seen an adrenally insufficient patient have peripheral eosinophilia. How common is it? So it's really not that common. It's really largely theoretical. There is one small but really old series of patients with chronic AI that suggested an absolute EO count of 500, which isn't even that high, was only seen in about 20% of patients. Okay, nope, never mind then. We shouldn't rely on this. No party for the EOs, guys. EOs are not invited to this party. Okay, <laughs> so to sum up this section, signs and symptoms of chronic adrenal insufficiency are vague, not terribly sensitive, and certainly not specific. Moral of the story, if fatigue is our most sensitive marker, we need some better tests. So let's get deeper into a case. We have a young female with asthma with history of multiple exacerbations a year coming in with worsening fatigue, nausea, weight loss for the last few months. We've ruled out depression, malnutrition. She's up to date on her cancer screening. So now I'm thinking about AI for her because she's been on steroids. Guys, how do we make the diagnosis? It's not going to surprise anyone to hear that the diagnosis of AI is indeed made by direct measurements of these hormones. So we're talking cortisol and ACTH, but this can really be done in a couple different ways. Oh no, it sounds like we're headed to the dreaded cosentropin test. What we are going to call the court stim test for the rest of this podcast. This has been a pain in my butt and something I will admit I have avoided with all my powers. I kind of love me a good court stim test. What a nerd. <laughs> so I recently recommended doing this as a med consult at an orthopedic hospital for a patient I was genuinely worried about. Seeing a bunch of orthos try to work through a cosentropin stimulation test is pretty hilarious. All the more reason to focus on it. Let's review the basics first. To review, we have the HPA axis. So again, this is the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, and this consists of three main hormones, CRH, ACTH, and cortisol. So disruption of this pathway at any point can cause AI. We call disruption at the level of the adrenals. Primary AI. We call disruption at the level of the pituitary. Secondary AI. And we call disruption at the level of the hypothalamus. Trouble. <laughs> you mean tertiary AI. Right, tertiary AI. So we know that patients like this one who are on chronic steroids are at risk for adrenal insufficiency. This is because chronic steroids prevent endogenous CRH and ACTH secretion. This would be classified as tertiary or secondary AI. Now, that's different from someone who has autoimmune adrenalitis, which would be classified as a primary AI. 
Yeah, that's right, Trey. And this really leads to an important point. So while cortisol secretion is the endpoint of this HPA axis, remember that the adrenals themselves are also under the control of a different axis, this being the renin-angiotensin axis. So a patient with secondary or tertiary AI should still have a normal renin-angiotensin axis, but a patient with a primary adrenal lesion might not. That's why we always hear that primary AI, not secondary or tertiary AI, can cause mineralocorticoid deficiency. Because in primary AI, when the lesion's at the level of the adrenal cortex itself, we can have collateral damage to the other layers, like the layer that secretes aldosterone. Which one is that again? The glomerulosa. Right on. While in secondary or tertiary AI, aldosterone is safe, and it's free for the renin-angiotensin axis to stimulate it. Since most of our patients, including our patients, don't come in with this established diagnosis when they come to us... You mean she doesn't have her diagnosis tattooed on her chest? Nope. We have to do some work to figure out if she is in fact adrenally insufficient and where the lesion is. Okay, so here is your menu of tests to choose from. First, you have the AM serum cortisol. Two, you have serum ACTH level. And finally, you have my jam, the ACTH stimulation test. Yes, the dreaded <laughs> cord stim test. Okay, no comment on your jam. But let's go through all the different types of AI and what results to expect. So for primary AI, what would you expect their AM cortisol and ACTH to be? High, low, or normal? Well, cortisol is going to be low, duh, we are talking about adrenal insufficiency, but the ACTH, it's going to be high, right? It's knocking on the door of the adrenal cortex, but no one's home. The pituitary keeps on sending reinforcements with more and more ACTH. Ah, I love that analogy. So next time I get an elevated ACTH back with a low AM cortisol, I'm going to be thinking about that poor sad ACTH that went down to the adrenals to play, but nope, no one was home. It was atrophied up, womp womp. (laughs) And this is also why we see hyperpigmentation specifically in primary AI. So remember that hormone POMC? It's a common precursor to both ACTH and melanocyte stimulating factor. So this high ACTH state also means high melanocyte stimulation, thus hyperpigmentation. And let's take it back to our patient who was on frequently high-dose steroids. What would you expect their AM cortisol, ACTH, and cortstim to be, high, low, or normal? Okay, so because steroids are suppressing CRH and ACTH this whole time, we still expect a low ACTH and a low AM cortisol. But when it comes to the court stim test... Those friendly neighborhood adrenals are working just fine. Knock on their door and they're going to respond by pumping out cortisol. We'll have an appropriate cortisol after ACTH stimulation. Okay, wait a minute. So I agree with the low ACTH and the low basal cortisol. But what if this process has been going on for a long time and it's been years since the adrenals have gotten a knock on the door from ACTH? Say the adrenals are atrophied up. Won't they not be able to respond to any type of stimulation? Exactly. So it seems like there's really two possibilities of response to ACTH stimulation depending on the chronicity of this process. I kind of picture these adrenals as the old man from the Pixar movie Up. So hear me out on this one. In the beginning of the movie, he was this happy young man, but after years of no one knocking, he became all grumpy. So anyway, after long-standing secondary or tertiary AI, the cord stem will actually be low with stimulation, whereas with a more recent pituitary or hypothalamus insult, the cord stem should be appropriately responsive, like the young man in the movie. Nice. I love that. So to sum up this section, the diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency requires detection of a low AM cortisol or inappropriately low serum levels after stimulation by ACTH, or a good court stim test that Marnie loves. 
We can localize a lesion by combi combining the measurements of serum ACTH with the results of the quartz stim test. Okay, so that was a nice rundown of the three tests and the results you'd expect for each of the different types of AI. But for our patients, I'm hoping I can just get it away with sending off an AM cortisol and not have to do that dreaded quartz stim test. Hold on, Shreya. First, never miss an opportunity to quartz stim a patient. Second, we should probably take a step back and ask ourselves, how good are these tests? Let's start with the AM cortisol level. Well, you first got to remember that cortisol secretion is episodic, and this makes interpreting cortisol levels really, really difficult. So for example, levels are higher in the morning than in the evening. Yeah, so remind us, why do we measure cortisol in the morning? Well, it's because generally levels are higher in the morning, and this makes the test even more specific. So another way of saying this, we can best rule in adrenal insufficiency if we find low AM cortisol when it should be at its peak. Okay, so how low is low enough for me to feel confident in my diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency? Most people think that values of 5 mics per deciliter and below can successfully predict adrenal insufficiency. There are other people, specifically the Endocrine Society, that argue that 3 is a better marker to increase the specificity. Okay, so let me take a stab at this. So if our patient's AM cortisol comes back at 3 or 5 mics per deciliter, that's extremely specific and can rule in adrenal insufficiency. You nailed it, Shreya. Yay! Conversely, values of 15 mics per deciliter and above can successfully predict normal adrenal function. So basically, at this 15 mic threshold, a high AM cortisol is an extremely sensitive test and can rule out adrenal insufficiency. Okay, so I got the specificity and the sensitivity, but okay, I'm no biochemist, but from what I remember, cortisol is a hydrophobic hormone and usually is circulating with a binding protein, right? Shreya, you had me at hydrophobic. <laughs> right. So it sounds like this is one of those situations where measured cortisol concentrations might be falsely high or low, not due to the cortisol levels themselves, but due to the binding protein. Yeah, you are exactly right. Cortisol does circulate in the blood bound to cortisol binding globulin and albion, and both of these are made in the liver. So diseases that affect levels of cortisol binding globulin and albion can really affect the level of cortisol. That is crucial to keep in mind. Tons of our patients are malnourished or have chronic liver disease or are acutely ill. All of these states will affect the production of cortisol binding globulin. Okay, so are we saying that we might find low measured serum cortisol despite a normal HPA access? That's exactly right. So for this reason, there is a strong tendency to overestimate the prevalence of adrenal insufficiency in cirrhotics. And it's worth noting that this has even been studied before. There was one study of almost 100 advanced cirrhotics, and one-third were diagnosed with adrenal insufficiency. But in these same patients, when salivary cortisol was measured, and this is a better proxy for free cortisol, it actually showed that this prevalence was closer to only 9%. Nice. So the takeaway is to think twice before loading up our patients with steroids. And by think twice, I mean get that cosyntropin stim test. Marty must be so happy right now. <laughs> oh, I am. All right. So we've been talking this whole time about the AM cortisol levels, but what about my quartz stim test? Oh, God. So for your quartz stim test, there are so many different ways to do it. There's a high dose, there's a low dose, there's a short, and there's a long. Okay. So rather than drag you through the data of all of these, the take-home is the high-dose test, the 250 mics of cosyntropin, is a standard and has a 98% sensitivity for primary adrenal insufficiency. And we should really note here that an appropriate response to this high-dose quartz stim test is defined as a rise in serum cortisol to 18 at either the 30 or 60-minute time points after stimulation. Wait a second. Why do we have to measure it at both the 30 minutes and the 60 minutes? Doesn't one or the other work? 
So that's a really good question. And the thinking behind this is that using both time points can actually prevent overdiagnosis of AI. So if we were to see a low cortisol level at 30 minutes, we would be thinking, oh crap, this patient has AI, let's give them steroids. But some people peak late and eventually do show a normal cortisol at 60 minutes. Time and again, you got to watch out for those late peakers. All right, let's sum up this section. AM cortisol is a great test to either rule in or rule out adrenal insufficiency at the extreme thresholds of 5 mics per deciliter and 15 mics per deciliter. But there's this huge gray area in the middle. The quartz stim test can fill this void and has excellent sensitivity when used in its high-dosed form for primary adrenal insufficiency. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coream50. Use the code coream50 to get 50% off. That's the code coream50 at factormeals.com slash coream50. So say I'm worried about this asthmatic patient for having secondary adrenal insufficiency from all her exacerbations and getting steroids. It sounds like from talking to her in clinic, I'm not really sure she's going to follow up. You know, she tells me she's been working two, three jobs. She has a poor health literacy and, and insight. I'm kind of torn here, guys. Should I just empirically give her steroids knowing she might or might not come back for these cortisol tests? Then again, am I messing up the test results by giving her steroids? Actually, can I give her steroids at the same time I'm drawing labs on her? The short answer to that long sentence was, and I'm sorry, I'm about to stop. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so, uh, okay. I'm really worried. No, no, no. So, it took so, my breath away. That's fine. That's fine. So the short answer to that very long description is yes, we can test and treat simultaneously. But the monkey wrench here is that the very steroids that we're going to use to treat, they show up in our assays for cortisol. Oh, man. So which steroids should we reach for that might not show up in the assay? Great question. So cross-reaction doesn't happen with dexamethasone. So dex should really be our go-to choice of steroid if we're going to treat empirically. Hold up. Wait a minute. Won't dex suppress ACTH and mess up the cortisol measurements? Yeah. So dex itself will suppress the entire HPA axis. So it's going to confound the picture. Because with DEX, it's going to cause both ACTH and AM cortisol to be low. But this isn't the case if we use this court stim test. So here we're supplying the ACTH. So we're going to bypass this whole issue with suppressing the HPA axis, and the test is still going to be diagnostic for AI. Great. Okay. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that there is one other simple way we can test and treat simultaneously. We could simply give another short-acting steroid, say hydrocortisone, and just hold the nighttime dose prior to measuring cortisol levels in the morning. And this brief interruption really shouldn't cause too much trouble. And let's not forget that hydrocortisone is also a great choice because it has mineralocorticoid action and it's the most physiologic. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, so to sum up this section, treatment can affect our measurement. We get around this by treating with dexamethasone, which won't affect our assays. However, dex will suppress our AM cortisol, so we need to check the quartz stim if we are testing while treating with dexamethasone. And alternatively, you can reach for hydrocortisone, but remember to hold the nighttime dose prior to checking AM cortisol levels because hydrocortisone will cross-react with the cortisol in the serum assays. And with that, let's cement adrenal insufficiency more with Dr. Nidhi Agarwal's takeaway points. Paul, one. So what are the ways in which adrenal insufficiency can present? I think adrenal insufficiency is one of the endocrine emergencies which we really do not want to miss. Unfortunately, the signs and symptoms of chronic adrenal insufficiency could potentially be vague and they're not terribly sensitive or specific. I think the way to look at the symptoms of adrenal insufficiency are to try and see if this is a primary versus a secondary adrenal insufficiency that the patient is coming in with. Fatigue is usually common to both primary and secondary adrenal insufficiency. Something which is more pertinent to primary adrenal insufficiency is hypotension and hypoglycemia. This usually happens because the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is shut off. For the same reason, we have electrolyte imbalances like hyponatremia and hyperkalemia as well. A very important physical finding in patients with primary adrenal insufficiency could potentially be hyperpigmentation of the creases of the hand, of the extremities, of the oral mucosa as an example. And this happens because of an increase in ACTH and POMC, which is pro-opio-melanocortin, which also makes another hormone called melanocyte-stimulating hormone, which leads to hyperpigmentation in these cases. It's important to note that this is not seen in patients with secondary adrenal insufficiency because in that situation, the ACTH, if anything, is low. Going on to Paul 2, so talking about the diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency, we should take advantage of the fact that cortisol has a dynal rhythm in our body. It usually starts peaking in the morning, anywhere between 7 and 9 a.m., It usually starts going up between 4 to 6 perhaps in the morning, but then it peaks only between 7 and 9 a.m. Along with an a.m. cortisol, we also like to get an ACTH level, and this is usually done to distinguish between primary and secondary adrenal insufficiency. With the basal ACTH is high, our diagnosis goes more towards primary adrenal insufficiency, and when it's low, we are thinking more secondary. An important thing to remember here is the use of exogenous steroids, which is probably the most common risk factor for adrenal insufficiency these days. In that situation, the ACTH will be low because exogenous steroids usually cause secondary adrenal insufficiency. Poll 3, talking about the diagnostic tests for adrenal insufficiency, AM cortisol is a wonderful test to either rule in or rule out adrenal insufficiency. But the thresholds differ according to the different guidelines that we look at. The Endocrine Society guidelines talk about looking at a level which is less than 3 micrograms per deciliter in the morning. Again, we want to do these levels between 7 and 9 a.m. when we expect the cortisol to peak, even physiologically. So if the number is indeed less than 3 micrograms per deciliter, we have our diagnosis and the Endocrine Society guidelines recommend no further stimulation in the form of an ACTH stimulation test but to find out the cause and potentially replace steroids in those patients. The maximum utility of ACTH stimulation test is more in the intermediary stage, so between 5 and 15 micrograms per deciliter of cortisol, and that is um, essentially a huge gray area in the middle where the ACTH stimulation test can be potentially very, very helpful. 
If the AM cortisol is greater than 15, we say that the cortisol response is appropriate and in that situation, we do not like to carry on an ACTH stimulation test. Pearl 4, so testing and treating adrenal insufficiency. This is a very important management pearl that we should remember. In patients who come in with adrenal insufficiency, and again, these symptoms can be very vague. They can come in with just fatigue, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, weight loss. So these are symptoms which could potentially be present in so many other diseases. So again, I think a clinical suspicion of adrenal insufficiency, we should potentially act on that suspicion because these can be very, very nonspecific. And we should ask about the use of steroids because that is potentially the most important triggering factor of adrenal insufficiency and common things being common. In my practice, at least, I've seen that adrenal insufficiency and a potential adrenal crisis does happen when steroids are abruptly stopped. And uh, that's something, again, that we need to tease out from the history in these patients to give us a more accurate diagnosis. So yes, so when the suspicion is high, I agree, we should just treat these patients with steroids. And you can use steroids in so many different forms. You could do IV or oral steroids. And there are so many options out there. The most important thing to remember is that we need to get a cortisol before we give these patient steroids. So they could come in the morning, they could come in the afternoon or the evening, but a baseline cortisol is very important before we start these patients on high-dose steroids. Dexamethasone is a very potent, long-acting steroid, and even if dexamethasone is given to these patients, it will suppress endogenous cortisol production. The reason the use of dexamethasone is important is because we can potentially do an ACTH stimulation test while the patient is on dexamethasone. And that has more to do with the ACTH stimulation test itself, because in ACTH stimulation test, you are checking the intactness of the HPA axis, and it's not so much to do with the endogenous cortisol production itself. Thank you so much, Dr. Agarwal, for that recap. All right, guys, let's talk about a, a throwback from our hepatic encephalopathy episode. Let's talk about how it relates to hypokalemia. Yeah, I found this pearl particularly interesting because the hypokalemia is, in many ways, entirely iatrogenic. The therapies that we give to these patients for ascites, and I'm mainly talking about loop diuretics here, causes hypokalemia due to direct renal losses. And as we learned from the podcast, it's the renal handling of hypokalemia that actually causes ammoniogenesis. So the therapies that we're giving for complications of cirrhosis causes hypokalemia, which then worsens hepatic encephalopathy, a different complication of cirrhosis. And it just reminds me of how when I was an intern, I would just replete people all the time just because someone told me to, and that was just my job as an intern. But who knew there was so much more to it? Sounds like my intern year too. And I really want to take this opportunity to one-up Marty and propose this as actually a <laughs> three-hit phenomenon. So not only are we causing hypokalemia with the use of aggressive diuretics, but in many cases, we're going to cause alkalosis too. And alkalosis, as we remember, favors the unprotonated NH3 form of ammonia. And this is going to cross the blood-brain barrier much more easily and jack up those neurotransmitters and worsen the hepatic encephalopathy. Nice. That was a great sum up of the physiology there. All right. Listeners, let us know if this has helped you guys and how it's impacted your practices. All right. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please email us at coreimpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at at coreimpodcast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at coreimpodcast. 
Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. All right. Thanks for joining us. See you guys next Wednesday. Take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.